So, Bob, coronavirus, we're both stuck in our offices, <laughs> and I forbade you to enter my house <laughs> because I don't know what kind of cooties you got on you, and I know yeah. you're going to want to hug me, and it's just going to yeah. be all, what, all kind of messy stuff. <laughs> so, instead of dealing with all that stuff, I thought, hey, let's just you know model proper self-isolation, flattening the curve. Uh, what do they call it? Social distancing, right. and uh, do this thing over Zoom. What do you say, Bob? Let's do this. Let's answer patron emails and questions that are directed to you, Bob. And uh, let's see what comes out of our faces. What do you say? I feel so rejected. This is the Psychology and Style Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and a rejector of cooties. Who are you, Bob? <laughs> I'm the rejectee. Uh, my name is Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle. I see individuals and couples and do occasional DBT skills classes. And by occasional, I mean weekly. And uh, you and I have been friends for a long, long time. Do you have room in your practice anymore? I thought you were kind of full. Uh, depending on people's uh, availability, there's a bit of room, yeah. Oh, okay. So if you're in the Seattle area and you want the best therapist on the planet and oh, well. give, give Bob a call. Uh, they can go to bobgettle.com. Correct. The website. Okay. Facebook question for Bob from Rebecca. She writes, what does Bob think about any old person becoming a life coach to help other people with their quote unquote best lives? Seems like a bit of a trend lately for some people who have done some unaccredited self-improvement course to then start up businesses, quote unquote, helping others as a life coach. Am I being too snobby? What do you think, Bob? No, I have a concern, though I do believe there are some very good life coaches out there. I'm thinking of one in particular that I would not hesitate to refer people to. I think she's good and ethical and smart and savvy and well-trained. And um, I think there probably are folks out there that um, hang a shingle as a life coach and then and and aren't really up to the task don't really understand what they're what they're doing and do have the potential to cause harm so i don't know if you're a snob but if you're a snob so am i yeah so on one hand i value the free market and so i value people as long as they're following the law that they should be able to market now maybe we need to change the laws occasionally but there's no law against someone saying they're a life coach and that they're helping people with their best lives, and even kind of intimating that they do mental health services, even though they don't say directly. Uh, if, if people interpret it that way, like, oh, yeah, I'm depressed. I'm going to go see a life coach. And the life coach is like, I just want to make sure you understand I'm not a mental health person, but I am a life coach, and I can help you with various different things. As long as the claims aren't false or misleading or something, then um, you know, I, I value the free market. For example... I use play therapy effectively. Really? I, yeah. I, in, you know, I, in the first 10 years of my career, which when you think about it is a long fucking time, um, I treated many, many kids, you know, younger than 12, who the primary mode of therapy, if not like the only mode of therapy, was to use play. And so I got down on the ground. We did puppets. We did Legos. We did Uno, we did um, 
what's that? The ungame. Do you remember the ungame? I remember the ungame. Do you ever use a uh, sand tray? <laughs> yeah, sand tray. I used art. I used uh, like throwing balls in t- at each other's faces. Like there were, you know, pretend. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you that I learned uh, through my own experience and also my own intuition and also my own supervision. I've never taken a course on play therapy. And I'm certainly not a certified play therapist. There's an organization that certifies, quote unquote, play therapists. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I've reached out to those people, uh, the actual uh, people on the board of that organization of accreditation, and I've asked them, like, so I'm all for the education of play therapy. I'm all for the certification of play therapists in the same way that you certify art therapists or something. But what do you think about a person like me who I believe I effectively used play in therapy for a long time. And, and if I went back to use, you know, treating kids, I could do that. Uh, and I supervise people, lots of people who use play in therapy and none of them have taken a class on play therapy usually. And so you have clinicians and supervisor both having never taken a class on play therapy. I've studied it. I've read books on it. I've, you know, I've done a lot of my own work on it. And I asked them, you know, what do you think about that? And they said, well, uh, it's fine. It's, you know, where we support that being a certified play therapist doesn't mean you're any good at play therapy and being a non-certified play therapist doesn't mean you're bad at play therapy, but being a certified play therapist, you're more likely to be good at play therapy. And if you're not certified as a play therapist, you're probably more likely to not be good, as good as someone who is certified. But that doesn't bar people who are not certified and maybe have never even taken a class from using play and therapy. Now, they shouldn't call themselves a play therapist because we're trying to uh, codify that term for people who are certified which is fine with me, you know, it's same with art therapists. You can't, and generally speaking, it's not like against the law, but you can't generally call yourself an art therapist unless you're uh, certified or registered and have gone through the appropriate education process, but you can use art and therapy and the, the experts in art therapy will say that. Now, there's, that's changing though. Um, and as play therapy becomes more of a thing, it's same with sex therapy, honestly, sex they're certified therapy. sex therapists. Right. I've never taken a class on sex therapy. I have talked for th- hundreds of hours with my clients about sex, you know, and I know my limits because I, I, I'm not a super expert on biology and other kinds of things, but I, I do consider myself a super expert on sexuality between couples because I have worked for you know, months and months with individual couples with, you know, some couples on what gets in the way of their sexual lives, which there are hundreds of barriers that could come in between people and their, you know, approaching their sexual goals in their life, that kind of thing, you know, having the, the sort of best life. So to speak. anyway, so when it comes to life coaches, I don't want to be one of those people that says you can't do that even though they might be doing great work and they're not doing anything wrong just because I'm insecure about people encroaching on my territory. Um, And that's what some play therapists are doing. That's what some art therapists are doing. That's what some sex therapists are doing. Um, That's what some EFT people are doing, honestly. What do they do? They're saying 
we can't even teach EFT because we're not certified as EFT people. Oh, I see. Like I've been utilizing and teaching EFT for a long time. Yeah. I've taken no class on EFT. Well, you do attachment um, oriented therapy. I've never taken a class on attachment oriented therapy. That's the whole thing. Like what, you know, like there's this movement of like, now I get it. Like we need some standardization, but we need to be rational about this at the same time and evidence-based. Can uh, play therapists prove that non-play therapists are harming their clients? You know what I mean? Because they haven't taken a class on play therapy. They can't prove that. Um, can they prove that there's an increase of risk? Maybe, you know, I don't know. But um, are there other routes to becoming proficient in play therapy that don't involve taking a class in play therapy? Yes, there are. Um, it's just you can't sell tickets for that. You can't sell books for that. You can't sell certification uh, accreditation for that. And we have to understand those are the systems of power, you know, and we have to understand that when systems of power uh, have power, they abuse that power usually. Unless you have a check and unless there's a checks and balance, like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that, play therapist. You can't do that, sex therapist. You can't do that, art therapist. You can't just claim something and eliminate a whole bunch of people from helping their clients because you want those resources, because you, because you believe, because you're trying to justify your position. Now, within reason. So in the same way, I don't want to be that kind of person as a therapist saying life coaches are encroaching on, encroaching on my world and, I, and being snobby about them when where's my evidence, you know, and where's the precedent? Like people, life coaches is a term. If we believe as a profession that the, that the public is being harmed by this life coach thing, then it's incumbent on us to educate the public about the difference between a life coach and a licensed mental health professional. It's not our job to try to eliminate life coaches, like some kind of Nazi, you know, some sort of fascist. It's our, if, if we believe people don't understand what mental health professionals really do, then we need to educate people. And I don't see a lot of people putting effort into that. You know what I mean? So, uh, so there's that. Now, on the other hand, we absolutely need to have standards in the mental health field. We can't just have people claiming they do mental health services when there's, there's little reason to believe that they understand the standards and know how to ethically practice. Also, there's this movement in our field where a lot of therapists are wanting to be life coaches to get around ethics and legal responsibilities. And also as a marketing thing, you know, because some people are, are attracted to life coaching because they don't want to see a therapist for whatever reason. And so there's a lot of therapists out there that are saying, I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a life coach. And it's, it's unclear. It's sort of case by case basis as to why they're doing that. But in my anecdotal experience, because I've had supervisees come to me and, and ask me about this, um, I'll be like, well, why are you wanting to be a life coach? And they'll be like, well, I, I just want, you know, it's usually something having to do with they, it's being a therapist is inconvenient to them, you know, and the ethics and the responsibilities are inconvenient to them. That's usually the reason why. Um, or they're having trouble marketing themselves and they want to kind of suck up that life coach um, market. And what I'll tell them is like, well, you can't do something to get around your responsibilities, especially while I'm supervising you. but if you're having trouble marketing, you know, let's, let's work on marketing. 
let's not let's not bastardize your your you know practice just you know you're making a deal with the devil potentially having said that I do know some therapists who are life coaches that are probably operating within the standard of practice and aren't breaking any laws or any ethical codes. Um, so I'm not, it's just kind of a weird area. It's, it, it's usually it's case by case basis anyway. So that's my rant, Bob. What do you think? I'm, I agree. <laughs> All right. Next, uh, 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 patron email anonymous patron says, uh, she says, I have been seeing my current therapist once per week for three years. He practices psychodynamic and person-centered psychotherapy. Uh, side note, uh, sounds like a, a great therapist. His approach has been revelatory after years of deeply unhelpful therapists. However, even after three years, I'm still struggling to fully trust my therapist and will relinquish fears of being abandoned by him. My therapist and I have worked hard over the past three years to establish a trusting therapeutic relationship. However, an incident that occurred six months ago has prompted somewhat of a gear change for me. I arrived at my therapist's office at our usual time to discover that he wasn't there. After knocking on his door several times, I frantically checked my email only to find no messages. An unanswered phone call and a text later, he sent me a series of deeply apologetic text messages to explain that he was sick and couldn't make it to the session. The following week, he began our session by apologizing for not contacting me. He contextualized his lack of correspondence by explaining that he had suffered a sudden and severe allergic reaction that landed him in the hospital. Despite the rational part of my mind empathizing with him and knowing that, under the circumstances, he would have been wholly focused on his health rather than work. I cannot help but feel deeply aggrieved by this incident. We've spoken about what happened and what it's brought up for me candidly and at length during several sessions, but it feels like I've been taking a step back since it happened. My MO has always been to keep an emotional distance from people, and despite my best intention to open up in therapy, I cannot help but default back to being incredibly guarded during sessions occasionally dissociating, by the way. This incident hasn't helped matters. Do you have any suggestions to how to begin to open up more in session and how I can begin establishing more trust with my therapist? Bob, what do you think? I say start by reading that email to your therapist. Uh, they're probably going to be responsive. And um, I, this is why we go to therapy is so that we get to be in scrapes like this and figure it out and work it out. So to me, this is indicative of you and your therapist doing good work and you've hit this thing. <laughs> it was going to be something. And uh, now you have a chance to work with it. So being this candid, being, I would read the email, read the email to the therapist and talk about this stuff. Because the rational part says one thing, and then the heart says the other, and and there you are, and you're kind of stuck there. And my guess, though, is that the the vulnerable question that needs asking may have been talked about, but not genuinely asked. How can she drum up the, I don't know, motivation to trust again? Because it sounds like she's pulling back, and she's like, I want to get back to trust, and you know, it sounds like he's passing the test, so to speak. He's being a good therapist. He apologized. And, you know, as His a person who uh, actually has gone through a situation like that with allergies, I'm here to tell you like, yeah, like um, 
I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have any kind of brain cells left during an incident like that to actually call all my clients, let alone even have their phone numbers and contact information on me. So uh, how can she kind of motivate herself to extend herself again and get back to that security? Well, um, uh, I think you have to be vulnerable. Uh, I don't know how to help you do that, but whatever the primary, whatever the inside your heart fear is, can't talk about reassurance. doesn't work. Can't recognize the need for reassurance. doesn't work either. The only way to get reassurance is to actually be open and vulnerable and to ask the question. And it's like a leap of faith or a trust fall or something. And only in the, hmm, only in the experience of the response can you actually get any real relief. I don't think you're asking the right question. I don't necessarily know what the right question is, but whatever the meaning your heart makes of your therapist um, being unavailable to you, that's what's worth talking about. Not the situation, not the circumstance, and not the very understandable and rational explanation for why they're why why the why the guy didn't get in touch with you, but the meaning that your heart makes of it. And I don't know what to tell you, but it's probably around something like safety and acceptance or connection and engagement. But those are just and again, they're just words. Those are just words. Your heart makes this really important meaning. And that's from that place where the question needs to be asked. And I do believe it will be a question. And right now you're on the outskirts of just describing your fear. And your fear makes sense to me. I think it's a, I do, I think it's a good problem. And it's definitely a problem and it's worth your time and your effort. And I hope that you continue and look and find out what the hell it is. Because not only will that help in the current situation with your therapist, but I think it'll have the potential to have consequences that reach beyond therapy and into other relationships. So yeah. I hope we do. Great. Perfect. Another anonymous patron, I think related to this, it always takes me some time to get comfortable with my therapist at a weekly session. When I finally get settled in and feel able to open up, we usually only have 15 to 20 minutes left. I often leave there feeling frustrated because it's time to stop as I'm just getting started. We discussed this once and planned to jump in and quote unquote, get to work faster, but it hasn't really happened every week. I think I may need to ask my therapist to get tough with me and not allow me to be shy or skirt issues, though I don't know if that is something she can control if I'm not able to get myself to buckle down. Hmm. I do write notes for myself about what I think I want to discuss, but I'm not always brave enough to bring that stuff up right away. Hmm. Do you have any tips, tricks, or ideas how I can get into therapy mode before our session so I don't keep wasting time and money? Bob, what do you think? I don't think you're wasting time and money. There's actually research on this. I, I read it a long time ago that it's only in the last 15 or 20 minutes that people are really engaged in their sessions and that they're spending the first beginning part of their session, even the majority, disengaged. In my own therapy, it takes me a half an hour, but I don't know how else to put it. I can't find my butt with both hands. It takes a half an hour somehow for me to just connect with whatever it is. And I think I got a pretty good guy. I like him. He's a good therapist. He's sharp and savvy and good hearted and, you know, lots, all the good stuff. And I think it does take time, but you're identifying something really interesting here. 
you're identifying, um, you said, I'm shy about bringing stuff up. I wonder if you could, no, you know what? I was about to give you advice that I don't, that I wouldn't even take myself if I were to, if I were to have it offered. Can you be immediate? Can you just, when you sit down, can you be immediate about your experience, where your eyes want to go, where they don't want to go, where, (laughs) where you feel stuff in your body, in your chest or your belly or your heart or your neck or your head or wherever, where you feel stuff. And just instead of trying to be productive and make the use of therapy, maybe just be immediate. Yeah, I like that. I think that's great advice. I think that would work. Another thing that I'll say, I guess that relates to a lot of the emails today, is there's a part of your heart that trusts your therapist, otherwise you wouldn't do it. Right. And find that part and expand it somehow. And whether that's to trust your therapist, to love you and 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 to care about you, or maybe it's you do that for a half an hour before the session starts. You really just kind of focus on that, you know, and you, and any it's a mindfulness focus, I guess. And and any thought that comes in that sort of interferes you, oh, I'm just going to let that go by. I'm going to I'm going to really focus and stare at the warmth that I know he feels about me or she feels about me and you know relax my body and because that's probably what's happening in the first half an hour anyway is it takes that long for you to feel it in your body that okay i can relax my shoulders my emotions can come out naturally um you know all that kind of stuff you have a quizzical look bob what's that what's that about yeah i guess i'm you and i are sort of working under the premise that we agree that um this patron has a problem when maybe this patron is normal. Right. That's the other thing I want to say, which is what you were saying, which is that uh, the therapy is working. You know, according to your description, the therapy, it's not like you're wasting your time the first half an hour. Every time you have that half an hour, you're internalizing the, uh, the closeness and the safety. Um, that, Maybe part of the part of your work, and of course we have no idea, is the ability to have some agency over closeness with others. And that mm. first that first half an hour is you, you know, it's like if we're going to help someone learn how to not be afraid of swimming, we don't just push them in the fucking pool, and you also don't just jump, force yourself to jump in. You know, you start in the the shallow end and you, you put your feet in and you're like, okay, you know, you go at your own pace. And every time you do that, maybe every time you go to the pool, you gotta, you have to do those steps and you're like, oh, you know, but the last 20 minutes I'm splashing around in the deep end. I'm going off the diving board. How come every time it's like, well, you know, your body just needs that. And every time you, you walk yourself through that process, your body is learning, Ooh, this is a little tentative. Ooh, this is a little tentative. Okay, I'll trust all, you know, I'll open up a little bit, body relaxable. Okay, now I'm feeling better. Okay, this is great. Now I'm having fun. Now I'm reveling in the security. Okay, back to the beginning again. Like every time you go through that process, it, it's likely your body is learning every single time that you can trust other people and that you're lovable. Um, and to just kind of force yourself, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily uh give you the benefits of that entire process so i so it's quite possible you're not wasting if i had another suggestion it's that 
because uh, I've had many clients like this too, is have some kind of key phrase or question or word or something that transitions you from the first phase to the second phase. And then experiment and say, uh, let's try 25 minutes instead of 30 minutes a day or, you know, for the next month or something. Um, I did that with a client where uh, the question was simply, how are you feeling right now? And although that's a simple question, it was a language between the two of us that she really understood what I was asking. And I would, I would ask that question about halfway through the session and I would slowly kind of work our way backwards. But there was always, you know, a 20 minute, 15 minute time span that she wasn't ready for that question in the beginning. And as soon as I asked that question, we were in the second half of the, of the session where she was vulnerable and able to be herself. The first half, it was a lot of, if, if someone walked in on the first five minutes of my sessions with her, they would think we were just coworkers talking about life. It was that surface. Um, this, you know, the second half, they would not be, they would not mistake it for anything other than therapy. Um, all right. So let's take a break, Bob, unless you have anything final to say about that. Nope. All right. So let's take a break and we get back more emails from patrons. What do you say, Bob? Yes. Okay. We're back from the break. If you're not a patron of the podcast, please do so. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron. Also, if you're a lower tier patron and you want to become an upper tier patron, that's a way that we really understand you really like what we're doing, which mm -hmm. is much, much appreciated. Also, join us on Facebook and Instagram and also join the Facebook fan group where you can chime in with all the other fans. Also, if you haven't uh, joined me before, every Thursday in general, two o'clock Seattle time, I do YouTube live for an hour in which I answer your questions and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, it's all live. And, you know, so if you want to have a chat with me on YouTube Thursdays, two o'clock Seattle time, do those get recorded for people to watch later? They do, but I, I delete them pretty soon after because I find them to be embarrassing to be sticking around for a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I also just kind of want to create like, Hey, you know, there's a, there's a space where it's, it, you have to be there to enjoy it. You know, it's not yeah. something that it, it's, it, it's transient. It comes and then it goes. Nice. And, I like it. Impermanence. Uh, all right. Patron Arnett from New York writes, I have a therapist that I love and I believe we can, we can do great trauma work together. However, she and I seem to be on opposite ends of the religious and political spectrums. This is a bit of a mental challenge for me in terms of feeling connected to and trusting someone with different belief systems, someone I might not identify with even though I love working with her in session. This is largely influenced by the society I have grown up in. I believe that you have the privilege of being able to have difficult conversations publicly most of us don't have that ability at our work with our families, friends, on social media, et cetera. Uh, please help society change. So there's a couple things in there. But first off, Bob, what do we do when we have different political beliefs or religious beliefs than our therapists? Well, chances are everybody has different political and religious beliefs for me when they walk in the door. 
you know, how could it not be the case? Right. Um, this sounds like a good therapist. So my guess is that in practical terms, these are not a barrier, but I can imagine um, feeling anxious about that. Is my therapist thinking ill of me? Do they, do they think I'm a jerk? Cause I don't believe the way they believe or, you know, something like that. And um, you got to talk about it. And there's something useful in talking about it. Um, um, and, and, and talking about it isn't necessarily going to make it go away. It probably will feel anxious when you touch on some subject that's related to a difference that you have with your therapist. That's probably true in any relationship, but um, a safe relationship, we don't have to agree in order for things to be okay between us. Yeah, agreed. Piggybacking on that, yeah. like, like Bob said, talking about it uh, will likely help if the therapist is good. Also, understand that there's a lot of assumptions that people will make given propaganda in your echo chamber. I don't know what side you're on and your therapist on, but if I was to just speculate on either end, you you are an MSNBC person and your therapist is a Fox News person. Uh, that's one configuration. Well, what do you, what sort of echo chambery propaganda have you internalized about a Fox News person? You know, they're fascists. They don't care about human beings. They are greedy. They don't care about women. They don't care about minorities. They, you know. The, that's what your echo, echo chamber is telling you. Uh, that's assuming, you know, your therapist probably doesn't hold those points of view. So let's have the opposite. You're the Fox News person. Your therapist is the MSNBC person. MSNBC is very liberal, right? That's considered liberal. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, isn't like Rachel Maddow on MSNBC? No, she's on CNN, but um, oh. CNN has a leanings to the left and oh. MSNB, I think, is further left. Okay. Um. So, uh, so let's say you're the Fox News person. Okay, you've internalized the propaganda that uh, uh, liberals are irresponsible, anti-American, um, communists. Uh, I don't know, stupid. <laughs> what what do what do Fox News people think about us that we're we're uh, we're trying to destroy the country? Um, well, that we're atheists, that um, we have anti-Christian views, which yeah. I don't know, maybe that's true. Uh, let's see, what else do they say? I think I think the the biggest sort of overall paranoia is that we're going to destroy the country with yeah. our stupid points of view. Oh, and that we're trying to eliminate white people and religious people from the planet or something. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, anyway, so you know that's. If I'm guessing if your therapist is, is an MSNBC person, they don't believe that. <laughs> um, now, are they immune to the echo chamber? Are you immune to the echo chamber? Probably not. But the assumptions of the other side is frequently that the other side is either stupid or lacks empathy or lacks humanity in some way. And that's just not true. So uh, the fact that you have different religious and political ideas um, shouldn't really mean anything to the therapeutic relationship and to your relationship. Um, I have very lovely family members who have completely opposite religious and political views and vote completely opposite for me. And they're lovely, smart, uh, likable, pleasant people that I enjoy spending time with. Uh, it, 
we live in a time when uh, that is like a ridiculous notion that you would actually um, enjoy spending time with your opposite political spectrum uh, people. And I, I just find that to just be such a strange thing. It wasn't that way before. It, um, it, it was It was not that way. Uh, it was assumed that there's a variety of voting uh, decisions that people made in a community. And, and today it's like, you know, if, if you're from the other side, you better get out of our town or something. And just like, how did we get there? Um, the, you know, the example that I have uh, around this clinically is I had someone who was a conservative and shall we say a capitalist. He was, he worked, I won't give the exact job, but it was, it was very much, if you heard his title, it was like, it was like Donald Trump. He had like a Donald Trump sort of uh, job description. Let's just put it that way. And so he went to, he hired me as a therapist that he was referred to me, someone, and he went online and found my, or I gave him my disclosure statement, I should say over email. He read my disclosure statement. In my disclosure statement, I talk about how I am pro-social justice. I'm LGBTQIA plus friendly, um, those kinds of statements. It's not a lot. There's just a few statements in there. I think I say as a person of color, I understand what oppression can feel like. You know, just a little tag words so people can understand that I'm safe to talk about certain issues with because you should probably have that in your disclosure statement because not every therapist is a safe person to talk with about certain things. And so uh, he read that and when he sat down on my couch and we got through our initial conversation, he says, well, I, I know I have a question for you. Um, so from your disclosure statement, you know, it sounds like you're, you're pretty liberal. I just wanted to know, do you have any bias against me given my job, you know, where, where I'm at right now? And what a wonderful opportunity for me to belay those fears. And, you know, it was a valid question because uh, it wouldn't be absurd to imagine that someone in my echo chamber would hate a person like him. But did you have there, a bias? Huh? Do you have a bias or did you? Well, yeah. I mean, I have a bias about everything. I have a bias about... <laughs> Uh, myself. Um, I have a bias about white people and black people and bankers and uh, crunchy granola people who hug trees. You know, I, I have, uh, I have bias about everybody, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I know I have the bias that that's part of it, or at least I suspect I, I have bias about everything. And, but at the same time, I, I would like to think that I'm a good enough therapist and I don't know, good enough human that I don't, um, I don't think about that when I'm loving a client, you know, it doesn't have, it doesn't have anything to do with that. In the same way that when I'm loving a family member who is opposite side of whatever spectrum we socially identify as being opposite. Uh, I don't, I don't think it doesn't enter my brain. You know, I, why would I think about that? And even if I did think about that, you know, I'd just be like, well, you know, whatever. I, and I, and I wish more people did this because I think our political world would be a lot different if people actually did expose themselves and actually love and experience that the other side of the quote unquote spectrum, you know, they're lovely, likable, enjoyable, safe people. And uh, uh, we don't have anything to be afraid of. <laughs> um, and when we are afraid, then we create all of our narratives and we go to our echo chambers and we reinforce our silliness. And then that actually creates unsafety because now people are sort of digging their heels into certain notions 
uh, just to oppose you because they feel like you're invading their space and you're hurting their feelings. Um, it's really quite obvious to me that that's what's happening. Um, but you know, God bless America for trying to figure that out. What I like about your answer is that it's not bullshit. You're not saying, oh, no, no, I don't have a bias. You're saying, yep, I sure do. But the question isn't, do I have a bias? The question is, will my bias interfere with you being safe or me loving and caring for you? That's the real question. And the answer to that is pretty easy. Yeah. So that's my answer to that. She also has another question here. I listened to the rerun of the child abuse episode recently. When I was a child, a teacher reported bruises she saw on my body to CPS, Child Protective Services. I had behavioral issues and challenges at school, so at home, I was struck with a hard plastic object for discipline and subsequently isolated with minimal social interaction or play as further punishment for my behavior. Yet, I couldn't manage my behavioral difficulties well enough to remain out of trouble at school. I was terrified of going home each day and being required to show the poor marks I received on my daily report from school. Therefore, when CPS came to the elementary school to photograph my injuries, I was so hopeful that someone had finally come to help me and save me from the abuse that I was going through at home. From my perspective, uh, at the time, nothing happened after that point. After they came and took pictures of me, nothing happened at all. But after hearing your episode on child abuse recently, it seems there must not have been enough evidence for CPS to take action. I don't necessarily believe in lowering the legal burden of proof, but what I was taught, but I was taught to me at the moment was that I was helpless and life was hopeless and my life has continued to be a struggle ever since. Therefore, from my perspective, the system really failed me. Please let me know if you have any thoughts on this perspective and thank you for your great work. Bob, any thoughts on this? I don't know. I know actually no particular thoughts come to mind. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, what I'll say is that I'm sorry you went through that. Obviously going through abuse yeah, in all this context is just tragic and it should never have happened. It does happen. Should never have happened. Also, uh, what a heartbreaker that you have this opportunity where the school calls CPS and CPS person comes and you're just like, Oh, finally, you know, someone is, you know, going to help. And then they don't do shit. Now on one hand, that's not, that's not, it wouldn't be, you know, we don't know because you, you have your childhood memory and your childhood perspective, but it wouldn't surprise me that something like this would happen. CPS is a government-funded organization like the post office or um, legally appointed uh, lawyers, you know, court-appointed lawyers. These people are frazzled because, one, they're not getting paid enough for their education and the sort of professionalized work they're doing. It's not like public defenders love to spend their time at that office. They're frequently just waiting to move on to some private firm so they can actually get paid a good wage, a good salary. Not always, but, and CPS workers often have pretty good educations. A lot of them have masters and got into the business because they really care about people. And then they find at CPS, at Child Protective Services or just largely at DSHS, um, you know, larger government or agencies that deal with families and, and children, the welfare of people. 
is they find that they're given like literally hundreds of cases to work and little time during the week and little resources and they're not getting paid enough <laughs> and it's really stressful. And so uh, it's not that the CPS people don't care because why would they do this job if they didn't care? They, they, 99% of them are the most caring people on the planet. It's, it's because our society decides to pay billions of dollars on stealth bombers we don't use and not on services that really matter like CPS and other things like that. That's why we have a problem. So when we have a example where CPS dropped the ball, blame your politicians and you, the fucking voters, by the way, for not prioritizing this. So um, not to yell at my listeners, <laughs> but, um, and probably regardless of what country you're in, this is, this is probably a, a problem. I mean, you probably don't have the problem of overspending on military stuff, but because the United States has a particular issue with that, but bad allocation of, of tax dollars is, is, you know, probably a problem in a lot of places anyway. So, um, so maybe the worker was overworked and there were more, it's, it's always a, the decision that CPS workers have to make is, okay, I have 10 cases right this week and I investigated these 10 cases um, I only have so many hours in, in the week that I have to work. And I also have only so many resources like, like foster homes and beds for kids and investigators to kind of look at it and say, which are the worst cases? You know, I have, I can work, I have 10 cases this week. I can only actually work five of those. Well, how do you prioritize? Well, you just grab the five worst cases and you give the resources that and the other five, they don't get anything. Now, if the week that they're working cases all the cases are pretty light, then light cases are going to get worked. But if in all likelihood that CPS worker had cases where children were being sexually abused out in the open and there's multiple reports and, uh, you know, not to put it in a sort of uh, crass manner, but uh, your phys the evidence of the physical abuse you were going through might not have crossed the threshold for the resources that they had to allocate that week, and they just had to and they just dropped the ball. That's not an excuse, but it, but it is an explanation. It's also possible you just had a completely incompetent CPS worker. It's it's not, it's not unheard of. Um, so there's that. It's also possible that your that they actually did investigate your parents. And your parents were so good at lying that they convinced the worker that uh, they weren't actually doing what they were doing. Um, so there's a lot of different possibilities. But bottom line, you were failed. You know, the system did fail you, whether it's the voters or the worker or some other factor that we can't possibly imagine. You were absolutely failed by the system. You were being abused. CPS was called and nothing happened. And that's just the bottom line. And that's awful. I mean, that is just, that is just awful. To be betrayed by your loved ones, and then to be betrayed by society. You know, this is what happens to a lot of people who are raped. They are sexually harassed or raped or something, something terrible. And they go to the system you know, social workers, police officers, and the system fails them because, you know, just watch the TV show, Unbelievable. You have a, a, a teenage girl who was raped in the middle of the night 
and the police officers basically interrogate her into and pressure her into saying it never happened. And they strip her naked. They do the medical exam with very little consent given, very little explanations. It's, it's very traumatic. They take pictures of her naked. You know, they do all these terrible things. Um, you know, so not only is the individual raped by, an, they're betrayed by another human being, but now they're also betrayed by the larger society. How in the world are you supposed to feel safe and secure and happy about yourself when you're just, you're treated like shit by those around you and by the entire world. <laughs> um, it's a double tragedy and a double trauma. And you went through that. And, you know, I apologize on behalf of the system. I, I'm part of that system in a way. And I've been there before. I, I had, um, I, I always tell this story early in my career. I was, you know, as any young therapist, you're a go-getter. You're just like, I'm going to save the world. You know what I mean? I, you know, give, give me a chance world. You know, I, I have the professional know-how. I have the system behind me. I know what to do. A teenage girl came to me and t told me she was being sexually abused by her father. And it was really hard for her to tell me. And it took her a while to tell me. And I, I I'll never forget, you know, that session. I'm like, what a brave person you are. You know, we're both leaning in uh, at the session and, I, and I'm just like, okay, you know, I'm glad you told me. I'm going to do everything I can to help and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call CPS. What do you think? Well, I don't know. Well, you know, CPS is here to help and I'll, and I'll be with you every step of the way and we will do everything we can. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I didn't say it even like that. I, I said it like, I'm going to save you. I don't know what I said, but I said something like me and CPS are here to save you, here to help you. Because that's what I thought. So I call CPS, they take the report and they're like, thank you for telling us. This is exactly why we're here, all that kind of stuff. They send an investigator out to the house. They talk to the father and long story short, they don't do anything. So the father now knows that she made this report and told me about it. Um, I just got done telling her that she can trust me and the system. And the system didn't do anything, even though the kid was openly disclosing sexual abuse that was happening. Now, it was on the scale of sexual abuse. It wasn't, it, pro, there were probably more severe cases if, if you, uh, you know, sort of rank these things at CPS. But it was clear sexual abuse. And I was so demoralized and disenfranchised in that moment. And I'm just a therapist. <laughs> Imagine how she felt, right? I mean, the, the demoralization and the betrayal uh, by me and by the system that she felt at the time, it was an eye opener. And I thought, wait, I thought the world was just. <laughs> I thought the world made sense. People have been telling me CPS is there to help. I'm a mandated reporter because of this reason. CPS is there. You just have this vision that there's like a CPS SWAT team that like repels in from the skylight and like whisks you away and, you know, takes the abusive person and throws them on an island somewhere. So, you know, it's just this, but it's just like, no, it doesn't happen like that. And it's such a 
it's such a demoralizing realization. And so, you know, patron, and I'm his patron, or no, Arnett from New York, um, you know, all I have to say is I'm sorry that that happened. And I don't know what to say. <laughs> you deserved better. You deserve to heal from that. Um, we need to change our society. Um, I'm doing what I can from my small little corner of, of the world. Um, you know, I, I don't know what to say. You deserve better than you got. That's for sure. Well, any final words on today's episode, Bob? We talked about a lot of things. What's, what's your Jerry Springer? Do you remember Jerry Springer, the, the TV oh. show? And at the end, he would, even though every, there's like people yelling at each other and that's not my baby and throwing chairs. At the end of, the, of every episode, he'd sit down in front of the camera and he'd have something actually kind of uh, oh, yeah. important to say. Like, give us your Jerry Springer moment, Bob. Um, I feel a little bad because um, I think I found Arlene's... Um, Arnett. Sorry, Arnett. I think I found Arnett's um, description overwhelming. Um, and I don't really like the way I responded to it. So, um, yeah, I guess I would like to second everything Kirk said. You got a raw deal. I'm really sorry about it. You deserve better. And the thing that keeps going through my head is, um, God, what message do you get? How does that sort of imprint itself on your psyche and impact the way in which you see the world? And how does that cause suffering for you? I feel sad about that. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of sad things today. Yeah. But as we talked about before, there's nothing wrong with sadness. No, no, sad, sad, sad's okay. Sad seems like the appropriate feeling to have for this kind of tragedy. The sadness is human and in a way, I don't know, kind of honors the situation to be like to have a silver lining or to talk about solutions kind of demeans the truth kind of reality here which is like this is just sad it's it's a sad situation makes us feel sad i hope that um whatever you and i have said about it is a source of comfort and soothing yeah or at the very least we're with you in part in the sadness yeah well that does it for that episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining us out there please take care of yourself and vote wisely because you truly deserve it.